If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Those who profess to favor freedom and yet depreciate agitation are men who want crops without plowing up the ground. They want rain without thunder and lightning. They want the ocean without the awful roar. The awful roar. The awful roar of its many waters. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, or it, it may, may be, be both moral, moral and physical. physical. But it must be. It must be a struggle. But it must be a struggle. No struggle. No, no progress. Frederick Douglass, orator and abolitionist a man who needs no introduction. He teaches us that every real gain in the history of human progress has been born of earnest struggle. Coming up. Rochester, New York has a social justice history that is second to no city in this country. We need to get back to that. We take a look back at one city's efforts to re-energize the legacy of Frederick Douglass. At the center of it all, a historic monument the first ever to honor an African-American. Tonight, two men accused of vandalizing a Frederick Douglass statue. We had no idea who the statue even was. Our culture does not understand the value of African-American people. But our presence here says that that is gonna change. All that and more on this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Frederick. On a cold winter night in Rochester, New York, hundreds of people came out to get their picture taken with one of the city's larger-than-life residents, the 12-foot-tall monument of Frederick Douglass. With flashlights in hand, they waited for their cue from a team of professional photographers. In the resulting long exposure photo, Frederick Douglass looks out from his pedestal over a sea of blue and orange sparks, his arms outstretched. At one point, the crowd spontaneously broke into song. Then once more, with feeling. It was February 14, 2018, the 200th anniversary of Frederick Douglass's chosen birthday. The photo shoot was one of the first events in a year's worth of festivities in Rochester, where the city came out in full force to show Douglas some love. After all, he's a bit of a hometown hero here, even if his connection to this western New York City isn't all that well known outside of it. Douglas launched his abolitionist newspaper, The North Star, in Rochester. He raised his family in Rochester. He's also buried in Rochester. And within a few years of his death, the city put up a statue to honor him. As you know, Highland Park is now the home of the first monument ever erected to honor a black man in American history. And I am still overwhelmed by that. That's Carvin Eisen, project co-director of the Re-Energizing Douglas Initiative, speaking at the Douglas Bicentennial kickoff. That is something extraordinary. Rochester's statue to Frederick Douglass went up in 1899. It was placed downtown near the city's bustling train station. At the time, Mayor of Rochester George E. Warner said, and I quote, it is fitting that it should stand near a great portal of our city where the thousands who enter it may see that she, Rochester is willing to acknowledge to the world that her most illustrious citizen is not a white man. 
Rochester's monument to Frederick Douglass went up at a time when other cities around the country were starting to build monuments to Confederate soldiers and leaders. Confederates from the moment the Civil War ends are engaged in an ideological battle over the things which the Confederacy was dedicated to, which of course relate to states' rights, agricultural economies, but at their core revolve around bondage and slavery in a certain place for African-descended people. Richard Newman is a scholar of abolition history at the Rochester Institute of Technology. So when you see these people in the 1870s and the 1880s building memorials to Confederate leaders and trying to in a sense, relitigate the war, what they're saying is we're battling for the future memory of the past. The year before the Douglas Bicentennial, one of those monuments served as a rallying point for a resurgent white nationalist movement. Since the city voted in April to remove the Robert E. Lee statue, there have been three protests, counter-protests, and now violence. 32-year-old Heather Heyer died when a car... Men waving Confederate and neo-Nazi flags and armed with shields and clubs. As the saying goes, the past is never dead. It's not even past. Not all of those people were white supremacists by any stretch. Those people were also there because they wanted to protest the taking down of a statue, Robert E. Lee. Both the statue of Robert E. Lee and the statue of Frederick Douglass are weapons in an ongoing ideological battle over the past and how it's remembered. When Douglass dies in 1895 and the statue goes up in 1899, there's really the sense that there's a whole series of public battles still to be fought over the American soul. In Rochester, it was the African-American community that led the way in making the Frederick Douglass Monument a reality. African-Americans are trying to put this history back in front of people through histories, monuments, speeches. And there's one very persistent man in particular who stands out as one of the unsung heroes of that whole undertaking. His name was John W. Thompson. John W. Thompson's another one of these uh, Afro-Rochesterians that deserves more limelight. He's a working class figure, uh, works in the hotel and hospitality industry. He's active in the, the Masons. He's a member of a black church. And in, a, in many ways, he's an heir of the tradition that Douglas fought for, that abolitionist vision of the United States, which saw African-Americans as uh, equal citizens. So. In the 1890s, he thinks that African-Americans are being left out of this memorial tradition of honoring Civil War fighters. Even in the North, some of the monuments that are going up in the 1880s and 1890s are about white soldiers, white leaders. And so he wants to have this uh, statue in Rochester as a kind of parallel memorial to what black soldiers did in the Civil War. And he really doesn't get a lot of traction. He gets some support, but when he goes to the state legislature, they're not really interested. And so he reaches out to Douglas to try to draw in this great celebrity uh, and hero of his. And Douglas says, I shall be proud if I shall live to see the proposed monument erected in the city of Rochester, where the best years of my life were spent in the service of our people, and which to this day seems like my home. That's local history buff Andrew Williams reading a letter Thompson received from Frederick Douglass. Thompson was able to use this to convince the powers that be in the city of Rochester to go along with his idea. Andrew Williams, like Thompson before him, has spent much of his adult life trying to put the history of Western New York's African-American leaders in front of the public. While I was living and working in Albany, they had an exhibit on life in New York. And I said, there's not much African-American history in this exhibit about New York State. And 
they said to me, what are we missing? And I said, what are you paying? <laughs> okay, that was my entry into museology. William says growing up in a predominantly white suburb of Rochester, he didn't know much about the area's African-American history outside of what he learned in church. It was only after going to college in Auburn, the western New York town where Harriet Tubman settled, that Williams began to discover the hidden history his teachers hadn't taught him. When I came back to Rochester, I went to my history teacher and I said, how come you never taught me my history? And he apologized and said, it wasn't part of the curriculum and I didn't know it. So I accepted his apology after he took me to lunch. In the 1980s, Williams went on to work as an outreach specialist at the Rochester Museum and Science Center. It was there that he first became interested in J.W. Thompson after stumbling across a photo of the Frederick Douglass Monument in the collection. He was standing next to the ladder going up to the monument, and I wanted to know who it was. And fortunately, the librarian already knew the story, and she said, that's John W. Thompson. He wrote a book about the monument. And I'm like, oh, do we have it? She says, of course we have it. Williams was instantly hooked. And so I was so impressed that this waiter at the Powers Hotel, first of all, wrote a book, and that he documented everything about the making or building of the monument. And I tried to imagine someone in their 20s conceiving of this idea and then working it to completion. J.W. Thompson worked tirelessly to raise the $10,000 needed to build the monument, and it wasn't easy. Most of the donations were for modest amounts, although one contributor came through in a big way. Thompson wrote a letter to Haiti, their ambassador to the United States, and in response, the country of Haiti sent a check for $1,000, and that was the largest contribution of the $10,000. J.W. Thompson ended up commissioning the monument from a company in Rhode Island. But as the day of the dedication approached, there was a bit of a snag. The statue was actually en route on the day it was supposed to be dedicated. So that must have been a huge blow for Thompson. It was. In fact, he wanted to cancel the dedication. But thousands of people were already planning to be there and thousands of people showed up. It was, it was phenomenal. Among the many prominent individuals who attended the dedication for the empty monument were journalist and activist Ida B. Wells. Susan B. Anthony was a guest of honor. Douglas's family was there as well. The following summer, a proper unveiling was held. The 54 Massachusetts, the African-American regiment Douglas helped recruit soldiers for during the Civil War, also attended. Among other tunes, they played Marching Through Georgia, the 1865 song celebrating Union General Sherman's decisive military campaign in the Confederate stronghold. The unveiling ceremony was the culmination of five years' worth of work by Thompson and his planning committee. It's In its end result, Douglas is a metaphor for black contributions to America and the Civil War. But in its beginning, it's really about adding something to 
the memorial culture that's missing, African-American soldiers. John W. Thompson was fighting far more than for just a memorial to a black leader. He was fighting against a culture which was trying to, again, segregate and marginalize African-American people. For Andrew Williams, J.W. Thompson deserves more recognition as a profile in persistence and civic engagement. You can have a idea that can inspire people to do what has never been done before, and that if he could do it then, I can do what I need to do now. Among the projects Williams is working on is a children's book about the monument and the hotel waiter who helped make it a reality. I would like to have a book that circulates the city school district, in particular Rochester City School District, and and the suburban schools as well, because that's where I grew up. And so if I can um, hook up with an illustrator and um, move from there, it'd be like Thompson and his proposal. (laughs) But um, I would love to have it illustrated and produced here in Rochester. When we come back, we'll find out how the Re-Energizing Douglas Initiative used public art to get the city of Rochester to see itself in a different light. Stay with us. My name is Brennan. We're going to read the letter that I wanted to send to my school so we could change the name to Anne-Marie Douglas. Anne-Marie Douglas should be the school's name because she worked at home and on the Underground Railroad. She also helped Frederick Douglass escape, and she's very brave. And when Frederick went away for two years, she took care of the family. How did you learn all this stuff? Well, first we did a study in kindergarten about Frederick Douglass, and I thought, hmm, but, like... Was he the only one? And then when my parents told me about Anne-Marie Douglas, I was like, yeah. And we took lessons about Frederick Douglas, so I was assuming that Anne-Marie Douglas did a lot of things too. Yeah. This is our earnest struggle. I'm Darian Lehman. It was a bright October day. Contractors had been hard at work for most of the morning, hoisting Rochester's historic Frederick Douglass Monument onto the back of a truck, piece by piece. They were in the process of moving the larger-than-life abolitionist to a more prominent spot in Highland Park. And when the crane operator lifted the final 1,500-pound piece into the air, they discovered there was more. What are we looking at? Time Time capsule. Time capsule. What's left of it? Yeah, it definitely looks like some newspapers from when it was encapsulated. Sadly, the metal box was pretty beat up, and the contents were completely waterlogged. Thanks to J.W. Thompson, though, we know what the Monument Commission had put in there over 120 years earlier. Pamphlets from the Seneca Falls Women's Rights Convention that Douglas had signed onto, a map of the county, copies of local newspapers, among other things, had been placed inside the cornerstone back in 1898. Even though the time capsule couldn't be salvaged, many observers found the relocation of the statue on that crisp October morning pretty exciting in its own right. Something special happens when you take a big physical bronze sculpture with a ginormous crane 
and move it across the sky, okay? It was just a magical moment when it flew up in the air, literally. Over the trees and put it on a sidewalk, and then you stand next to it. It's just an ex it, it is almost beyond comprehension for me to see it there. This wasn't the first time the monument was moved. In 1945, it was transported from its original location downtown to the city's central park near the site of Douglas's last home in Rochester. But in 2018, as the bicentennial celebrations unfolded, elected officials decided it deserved a more prominent location, complete with benches and a small plaza right on the street. For Carvin Eisen, project co-director of the Re-Energizing Douglas Initiative, the relocation of the monument represents the final culmination of an ambitious public art project revolving around that statue. It comes full circle. All the great work that we did, the, the monuments that Olivia created. As part of the 2018 bicentennial celebration, Eisen commissioned local artist Olivia Kim to produce 13 life-size replicas of the statue that were then placed around town at sites where Douglas lived and worked. Kim says she got to know the original pretty well during that process. This sculpture's meant a lot to me. I stared at it quite a lot, trying to get the right attitude. My first encounter with the sculpture was on a scaffolding in the middle of the winter. It took three hours to take 80 measurements um, all by hand. Kim says the initial plan had been to replicate the statue using a 3D printer. We tried to have the sculpture digitally um, scanned but it was a very rough scanning and it would have taken just as much time to digitally fix that scan to make it appropriate to do a digital printing as it would for me to do it by hand. And I gotta say, I'm glad I did it by hand. And when it came to making the 13 sculptures, physically making them, we had an empty studio and about 150 volunteers came. Um, most people not even knowing how to do sculpture or anything like that at all. Uh, they learned on the spot and helped me make these sculptures. In keeping with the tradition established by the original statue sculptor, who had brought in Douglas's son Charles as a model for the statue's hands, Olivia Kim called on one of Douglas's living descendants to sit for her. Frederick Douglass's uh, three times great-grandson and Booker T. Washington's two times great-grandson, I believe, Ken Morris Jr., posed for the hands of the sculpture. Those hands, Morris likes to say, had touched those of his great-grandmother, who in turn had touched the man with the big white hair, as she used to call him. And I had this thought that hands that actually touched the great Frederick Douglass also touched mine. So in a sense, I can say I stand just one person away from history, and I stand one person away from slavery. For Carvin Eisen, one of the overarching goals of the Public Art Initiative has been to reconnect Rochester with its own history, especially its history of social activism. It's a side of the mid-sized city that lies hidden, or maybe just dormant. As RIT professor Richard Newman says, Rochester became better known as the city of Eastman Kodak and of Xerox, as a white-collar town. But, he says, it wasn't always that way. In the 19th century, Rochester was known as a great reform metropolis. Of course, it had a manufacturing uh, foundation because of the Erie Canal and railroads and the Great Lakes. But from the 1820s onward, it was known up until Douglas's death as a great city of reform. As a matter of fact, one of the world's great cities of reform. And that's why Douglas spends 25 years from here, and that's why his family wants him to be buried here. He feels comfortable here. It's where he grew up and became an independent entity. It's where he felt that, in many ways, 
the American Republic before the Civil War and the end of slavery really saw a future version of itself because you had reform advocates uh, who were espousing temperance, equality for workers, philanthropy, but also, and most importantly, uh, civil rights and women's rights. And Douglas participates in both of these causes for decades. So after the Civil War, Douglas, but also Susan B. Anthony are known as, you know, Rochester's first citizens. And then in the early 20th century, of course, Eastman and Kodak kind of run away with it. And we see this turn from a social justice city to a business city, a city that's based on not only business, but information technology, based on innovative technology, based on efficiencies. In just 61 years, radiology has developed from nothing to a position as one of the key tools of the medical profession. The important contributor success of this branch of medicine have been the companies which supply its materials, like Eastman Kodak of Rochester, New York. Here in the department where emulsion is applied to X-ray film base, employees are perhaps the cleanest factory workers on earth. That's what George Eastman symbolizes. This is a better industrial way, a paternalistic industrial way that benefits white-collar workers. But I think in terms of public memory, there's a real problem there because Eastman isn't up to the task necessarily of civil rights reform, of women's equality. Not only was Eastman not up to the task, recent historical research has revealed the extent to which his company contributed to the racial segregation and inequality that came to define Rochester in the 20th century. The housing stock that was built for Eastman Kodak workers and their families? The original deeds for most of those properties contain restrictive covenants clauses forbidding the sale of the property to African-Americans. Shane Wiegand is an area social studies teacher who's been researching the history of discriminatory housing and lending practices in Rochester during the Eastman Kodak Golden Age. Starting in the early 1920s, Kodak was one of the big people that did these restrictive covenants. They built neighborhoods like Meadowbrook, where there was 371 homes, all of which had restrictive covenants barring people of color from ever living in there. In 1920, Eastman founded ESL, Eastman Savings and Loan, to help Kodak workers finance those homes. At the time, Eastman said, quote, I want to make Rochester for the thousands of people I have gathered here the best place on the face of the earth to live and bring up their families, end quote. But for the thousands of African Americans who moved to the city during the same period as part of the Great Migration, well, that's another story. According to Wiegand's research, 1958 was the first year the bank Eastman founded approved a loan to a black person. It was also popularly said that the only job for a black person at Kodak during those early years was behind a broom. Systemic racism in housing, lending, and employment, combined with the policing required to maintain the racial order, contributed to Rochester becoming the site of one of the first urban rebellions of the 1960s. The 1964 uprising first broke out only blocks from the original site of the Frederick Douglass Monument. The riots grew out of an incident following a street dance at the corner of Joseph Avenue and Nassau Street just before midnight. A policeman had tried to arrest a man for public intoxication. Negroes claimed a canine dog bit one of them, setting off the explosion. During the civil rights era and into the 1970s, so-called urban renewal programs put highways through black neighborhoods, facilitating white flight to the suburbs while further cementing the racial and economic segregation that characterizes American cities to this day. As in most American cities, the tendency here in recent years was a withdrawal from the central core to the surrounding suburbs. 
People first, then business, headed for the open spaces. One of the legacies of racial and economic segregation in Rochester today is the chronic underfunding of the city's public schools. Only around 60% of children in the Rochester City School District graduate. One in 10 public school children is homeless. Just last month, EdBuild did a study that found that Rochester's boundary between Rochester and Penfield is the most segregated school district line in the entire United States. This really speaks to what we, what, what the results of these restrictive covenants, redlining policy, and it, it's just left us with a community in Monroe County that is incredibly segregated. Against this background, it was all the more outrageous when, in 2019, this happened at the site where Frederick Douglass attempted to enroll his daughter in school. Tonight, the city of Rochester is on edge after a statue of the famous abolitionist Frederick Douglass was ripped down only 30 days after being placed at Both the Both men accused of attempting to steal the statue are football players at St. John Fisher College. In a Facebook conversation with News 10 NBC, Milks tells us, me and my friend were just drunk. This was not racially motivated. We had no idea who the statue even was. The two white college students who vandalized one of the replica Frederick Douglass statues pleaded guilty to fourth-degree criminal mischief, a misdemeanor. In exchange, they went through a restorative process and agreed to pay to replace the $10,000 statue they destroyed. While the local district attorney touted this as a victory for restorative justice, many community members doubted that a young black man accused of a similar offense would have been afforded a second chance. The fact that the vandalized statue had marked the site of the school where Douglas's daughter had received discriminatory treatment was not lost on community members either. When the moment came to unveil the replacement statue, Carvin Eisen invoked this history of injustice. Place has memory. It was on this site, right near here, that Frederick Douglass had to lobby for his daughter. His daughter, Rosetta, was at the school, enrolled in the school, but she was segregated from the general population. Rochester City School student Eric Daniels then read from an account Douglas published in his newspaper describing the treatment his daughter Rosetta received. Instead of receiving her into the school, according to the agreement, she was merely thrust into the room, separate from all the other scholars. And in this prison-like, Solitary confinement received the occasional visits of a teacher. On my return home, I asked her, how do you get on at the seminary? She answered with tears in her eyes. Father, Miss Tracy does not allow me to go into the room with the other scholars because I'm colored. I went immediately to the seminary to remonstrate with the principal against the cruelty and injustice of treating my child as a criminal on the account of her color. This wasn't the only instance of racism the Douglases experienced during their 25 years in Rochester. Most notably, in 1872, the family's barn and house caught fire and burned to the ground while Douglas was out of town. When he arrived home by train, he couldn't find where his family had gone. And as rain poured down, he was turned away at a local hotel because of his race. Authorities deemed the fire an accident. Some hypothesized a jealous black man might have said it. But Douglas was unequivocal. The arson was an act of racial terror. Rochester also has its share of the Ku Klux spirit, he wrote. 
and that same year, he and his family left Rochester for good. There is an ongoing ideological battle over the past and how it's remembered. That includes the city of Rochester itself, as a city of social reform and abolitionist activity, but also as a city of racist segregation and discrimination. Frederick Douglass once said, we have to do with the past only as we can make it useful to the present and to the future. So, as the 202nd anniversary of Douglass's chosen birthday has come and gone, have we made it useful? As an activist, I think Douglass would really challenge us to think about what we're doing on the activist front. It's all well and good to say this would be Douglas's 200th birthday and we've got a great statue in Rochester that honors him and people in other parts of the country are talking about tearing down their lost cause and Confederate statues and we're trying to build up this image of Douglas as a great abolitionist and reformer. But he might really look askance at us and say, but there is so much in your world that you have to change and why don't you get busy with that right now? We knew that it was a courageous political act to put a monument of an African-American man on the streets of an American city, even if that man is Frederick Douglass and even if that city is Rochester, because our culture does not understand the value of African-American people. But our presence here says that that is changing and that is going to change. The story we want to tell about ourselves is Rochester is the home of Frederick Douglass and Susan B. Anthony. We stand for civil rights and freedom in Rochester, but we're also one of the most segregated cities in the entire country. My hope is, is that there would be a real movement around housing in our community that kind of starts some with education, but churches, community groups, individuals would really come together and, and demand housing equity and integration. In the modern world, we still have to deal with injustice in education, right? In criminal justice, in health care, in employment, and in housing, and in every dimension of our life, where we will stand and we will not allow this monument to be desecrated, we must also stand up for all of those other issues because those are the issues that we face right now. That does it for this episode of Our Earnest Struggle. Special thanks to Carvin Eisen, Richard Newman, Andrew Williams, Olivia Kim, and Shane Wiegand. The views expressed on the show don't necessarily reflect the views of the City of Rochester or the partnering organizations of the Re-Energizing Douglas Bicentennial Committee. You can catch up on any episodes you missed on demand on our Mixcloud page. Go to mixcloud.com slash ourearneststruggle. For Rochester's Community Media Center, I'm Darian Lehman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>